You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, uh, I thank you now um, for gathering us again by your spirit. Pray now that you would stir in us a heart for the city of Birmingham. In light of the gospel, help us to reflect on our calling as Christians, how you have called to called us to love the city of Birmingham. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so I'm the opening act. Like I said, I just have a few introductory remarks um, before I pass it over to David. So this is the fourth installment of the Faith and Culture series. Today we're thinking about loving the city. Now, if at the end of this class we've just sort of talked about the city abstractly, well, we really need to go back and try again. Um, We want to talk about loving the city that God has called us to in this time and in this place, the real people of Birmingham. So in light of the gospel, what does it look like to love the city. So let's put it this way. I basically have one point. Then I want to ask you two questions. So number one, what is the gospel? Number one, what is the gospel? Two, let's reflect together. How is the Advent institutionally called to love the city of Birmingham? And three, how are you personally called to love the city of Birmingham? So so one point, what is the gospel? And two and three, what does it look like for us to love the city of Birmingham? So now at the Advent, we talk a lot about the gospel. We say we have a living, daring confidence in God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I wonder sometimes um, if we all know what we mean when we say that. So now the obvious question we have to ask is, we talk about the gospel a lot. What, in fact, is the gospel? Well, there's all sorts of things we could try to say to pin that down. We could be here for hours. Um, But the gospel, we could talk about in two ways. The gospel is both a promise for you and the gospel is a story. So the gospel is a promise for you. And that's often how we talk about the gospel. So if, if if someone were to say to me, Brandon, believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and you will be saved. That's the gospel as promise. But God has, well, but we could also back up and think of the gospel as a storyline. And in fact, that's sort of what's behind the promise, right? God has done and is doing something in this creation. This is the gospel as story. So how many of you have heard of the gospel talked about in four points? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Yeah, a lot of people here. So that's the gospel as story. So we have the gospel as promise for you, and secondly, the gospel as story. So let me just sort of outline that for us. So when we talk about that, we have point number one, creation. We're told in the gospel who God is, who we are in light of who God has made us to be, who he has created us to be, who we are as his creatures. We are told where things came from. It gives us a sense of how things ought to be. Um, So, you know, so for example, 
when we hear that aspect of the gospel, why should we as Christians reject a sort of pop spirituality that tells us to, you know, find the power within? Well, because in the gospel we are told that we are creatures and we receive every good gift from God. So, point number one, creation. Two, the fall. So we're also given an account of the messed upness of this world. Why things have gone wrong. Why there is evil and suffering in this world. The Bible doesn't look past the hard realities of life. Um, and by the way, uh, this is important as Christianity fades in Birmingham. Because any sort of philosophical system, as we talk to people who are sort of tinkering with religion, any sort of philosophical system or religious outlook, it needs to deal with the hard realities of life, and Christianity does just that. Um, on this, as we think about the fall, we'll really have to reflect on what we mean by that, because we talk a lot about sin in church and in Christianity, and I think a lot of American Christianity has actually trivialized sin. Um, you know, so I'm a child of conservative Christianity, and I was often taught to think of sin as sort of moralistic wrong behaviors, right? That's actually sort of already trivializing the concept of sin in Christianity. Um, or if you're more on the liberal spectrum, side of the spectrum, you might treat sin as a socioeconomic issue. But one way or another, we can easily downplay the Bible's radical teaching about sin. One of my... Beeson professors says that much preaching in Birmingham is preaching against suburban sins, right? We, we go to church because we want to, you know, we want to feel bad. We want to hear about our lust and our greed, and then we want to be given a project to go work on something, right? But at the end of the day, it's a trivialization of sin because it's not actually dealt with the hard reality, the messed upness of life. Um, so we, we need to admit that something is terribly and drastically wrong. That's, that's what we're getting at here. So creation, point number two, fall, redemption, point number three. We are told how God has acted in history. This is where we get at um, the Old Testament, the story of how God has rescued a people uh, from Egypt. And then how it's ultimately culminated in Jesus Christ, how he has acted, how he has, um, how he has acted in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has been crucified, but he has been raised to life. This is the aspect of redemption. But there's also point number four, uh, which is restoration. There's still an aspect of salvation that is not yet come. So we recognize that the best is actually yet to come in the Christian life. So when we read in Romans, say at the end of Romans, where Paul will say to the Romans, um, uh, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, that's the kind of, this is the fourth point at play in Paul's writing, right? There's something yet to come. It's the eschatological, it's that end sort of hope that we are waiting for. Um, so that's, that's the kind of basic outline of the story of the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And in light of that, that actually, when we sort of take that seriously, and when we deal with the hard realities of life, and 
how the message of salvation deals with those hard realities, um, then that impacts the way we share the gospel as promised to people, right? Uh, if we neglect the storyline uh, and if we treat the gospel as promised as a sort of, you know, this is just for you to get your ticket into heaven, to go play on the clouds, play harps, uh, some sort of bodiless spiritual life. Well, we've not quite been, um, we've not quite reflected on the gospel properly. So it's important that we maintain the tension of the gospel as story and the gospel as promise. So in light of the gospel, in light of this radical gospel announcement and this storyline, two questions for us. What does it look like, and this is for us to reflect together for years, what does it look like for the Advent to institutionally love the city of Birmingham? And two, um, how are you personally, or perhaps in your small group or your family, how are you personally called to love the city of Birmingham? And I mean when I ask that, what does it mean for us to actually deal with the messed upness, the hard realities of life. Something is terribly and drastically wrong. And what does it look like for us to go outside of ourselves and serve our neighbors? Now, I'm basically, no, I've only used five minutes. So let me read, let me read uh, a quote from Leslie Newbigin here, and then I'm going to hand it over to David. Um, so, so listen carefully. So Leslie Newbigin, by the way, is a he was a missiologist. He um, was a missionary in uh, India. Uh, I believe he was a Scottish theologian. So here's the quote. If the gospel is to challenge the public life of our society, if Christians are to occupy the high ground which they vacated in the noontime of modernity, it will not be by forming a Christian political party or by aggressive propaganda campaigns. Once again, it has to be said that there can be no going back to the Constantinian era. So there can be no going back to Christendom. It will only be by movements that begin with the local congregation in which the reality of the new creation is present, known, and experienced, and from which men and women will go into every sector of public life to claim it for Christ, to unmask the illusions which have remained hidden, and expose all areas of public life to the illumination of the gospel. But that will only happen as and when local congregation, congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life, and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members as signs, instrument, and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. Right, so what Leslie Newbigin is getting at here is, in light of the gospel, we are called to go outside of ourselves, and we need to recognize that the gospel, and this is where the storyline helps, right? The sort of, the fourth point, the eschatological hope, that, that longing for the new creation. When we reflect on that, we recognize that the church is were the first signs of spring in this winter of sin. So as we go outside of here, we need to let the gospel expose all the underlying sinful impulses of every sector of society. And that means government, to family issues, to relationship issues, 
to the way we treat our jobs, business, art, etc., etc. So now I'm going to hand it over to you. Thanks, Brandon. Um, for my part of this, um, I'm not going. I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to answer those questions that he posed. Okay. I'm going to provide the context and understanding of our city, the community that we live in, and how we as Christians and as a church maybe should process our calling and how we love the city and and, and how we um, interact with our city. Um, uh, and I'm going to do that by going through our city's history, uh, admittedly very quickly. Um, and this is one of the ways in which I'm likely to offend some people because when you go through history as quickly as this, you're going to leave something out that somebody thinks is important, right? So please uh, give me some grace there. Um, I'm also likely to point out some things that um, are challenging because I, I am from Birmingham. I grew up in this area, technically Bessemer, when I was a kid, lived there, went to Vestavia High School, and I've sort of um, always loved Birmingham. Uh, so this is a love story for me. I, I love this city, uh, but I recognize it's good and it's bad and it's ugly. And there's a lot of that, all of that here. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, but um, the other thing I would say before jumping in is uh, I work, uh, for those of you who don't know, I work for an organization that does um, uh, works on the city's revitalization. You know, I've, I've always, for 20 years or so, been kind of, I guess, called to that kind of work, uh, working on the revitalization of downtown and other neighborhood areas around the city. And so um, I get to see a lot of our city. Uh, and uh, one time I went to Atlanta with a group of people to uh, talk to a man named Bob Lufton. And Bob Lufton uh, was a part of helping to revitalize the sort of East Lake of Atlanta area, the sort of eastern side uh, of that, that place. And he was very involved in helping people uh, stay in their homes as the area sort of, um, you know, uh, to use the term gentrified and all of that. And so it, it was a very interesting conversation we had with him. The reason why I want to mention one thing with him is I think it's very important for us as we think about uh, cities as Christians. You know, our, we're in this place every day, right? We're in our home every day, and we see it through the context and through the lens of what we do every day. And uh, that sort of clouds our vision of the city to some degree. And Bob, when we were talking to him, most animated he got the whole time when we were talking to him. Uh, wasn't even prompted by a question that we asked. He sort of on his own went to this place and he said, you know, we as Christians, because he was a Christian, he had a ministry, we as Christians, we glorify going to some other country uh, to do things and, and, and treat that like that is some, uh, you know, thing that we can drop everything that we have and go there. And in that country, you know, there may be greater instability politically. There may be more hostility to the gospel, but we see somehow that as being uh, an easier thing to do than sometimes what we need to do right in front of us in our own cities, in our own communities. It's easier for me to convince somebody to go to some foreign land and to convince them to come to East Atlanta if they live on the north side. You know? And that and so that, you know, was I think a very powerful thing to think about as we in, interact in our city. What what are the things that we just we just say, oh, I don't know, I'm not gonna go over there, you know, or what you know, and, and how that, that clouds our ability to, to be a minister or be ministry in the city. So let's talk about the history of the city. What is it about our city's history that makes us who we are today? And I usually, when I talk, I divide the city's history into three major chunks of history. And I'm going to go fast, so put your seatbelts on. We're going to drive about 150 miles per hour through it. But, um, you know, we before 1871, Jefferson County was insignificant. It really didn't matter. You know, the, the county was not great agricultural land. It was not a city that really had any political or economic power in the state of Alabama at all. 
the, the Black Belt region and the North Alabama region dominated it all. We'd come out of the Civil War, and um, the state was trying to recover from that. But there was something that we did have in Central Alabama that um, really gave us opportunity. It was actually three things, three things God put in the ground, iron ore, coal, and limestone. Those three things together in abundance gave us the ability to have an industrial uh, economy or, or build an industrial city. Um, it just took people to, to do that, and it also took um, figuring out how to get the product in and out of here. So people came along um, like these guys. Uh, this is uh, J.T. Milner and Charles Lynn in the middle and Colonel James Powell, uh, who's called the Duke of Birmingham. You know, these guys, along with other names, you know, like DeBartoleben and Sloss and others, said, we're going to try to come and we're going to build this great city and we're going to try to make a lot of money. I mean, that was the goal. They wanted to make a lot of money, but they wanted to build this great city to rival uh, the great industrial cities of the world. And uh, this map, which I know you really can't read in detail, maybe some of you have seen it before, they laid out a modern city. They were very ambitious in this era. I mean, it was they laid out a modern city with wide streets and a grid pattern, and uh, they, uh, uh, you know, said they put the railroad tracks. They were able to get railroads to come in through the middle, uh, which created the sort of railroad reservation for the industry. And uh, they, um, you know, you know, decided that they were going to have. Uh, this great city that was rivaling Birmingham, Birmingham in England, which was the great industrial city of the world, so they named it for that city. And uh, they were so ambitious, so bold and brazen in it, that they even, the, the park that we now know as Lynn Park, who knows what the first name of that park was? Woodrow Wilson. No, it was the name before Woodrow Wilson. It was called Capitol Park because they swore they were going to steal the state capital from Montgomery <laughs> and they were going to move it to Birmingham and they were going to build the building right there. And so, th probably a good thing that didn't happen, right? But uh, that was the kind of ambition that they had when they founded this city. Um, and they were driving for that. And so people came here. Real people came here from all over the world. Uh, people came here not just from the fields uh, to the factories, but they you know, came from uh, Greece, and they came from Russia, and they came from England and Scotland, and they came from uh, really all over the place where they, they saw this as a, as a city of opportunity. But it was a hard first few years. There were several times in this, this upstart era that the city should have died. You know, it, it, there were two financial panics uh, nationally that could have wiped out all the economic uh, growth. Uh, there was a cholera epidemic. Uh, there were just all kinds of reasons why this city shouldn't probably still be here today during this era, but, but it is. Um, and to match the ambition of the city, to, to really show um, uh, the world what kind of city we were going to be, just a mere 30 years after the founding of this city and its population had gone like this and all, the, the business community got together and said, we are going to uh, make the boldest statement we can at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904 and we're going to send this statue, we're going to get this Italian artist to, to make the largest cast iron statue in the world and we're going to send him uh, to this um, World's Fair which lasted for a year and, and, and millions of people from all over the world came and saw this display and this was a statement of who Birmingham was and what we could do. And uh, that is the kind of spirit that existed early in our city. But it was a city that certainly um, uh, already had begun to make the seeds of some of the, the challenges. I mean, in an industrial city, you have people coming from all over the place. And so people begin to sort of draw lines and say, you know, well, these people can be over here and these people can be over here. Uh, and uh, we began to see, uh, see that as people came here. If you were a white southerner, you were kind of at the top of the food chain. If you were a white European, you were next. And if you were an African-American or a former slave, you were at the bottom. 
and that, that reflected itself in the work, it reflected itself in where people lived, and it was something that would uh, certainly come to signify our, um, uh, our future several years later. Um, three things that I say sort of ended this era that I think really defined the culture of the city going forward. This is a picture of TCI, Tennessee Coal and Iron, out in Inslee. Um, TCI was the largest competitor to U.S. Steel in the country. They were the number two competitor uh, and, and based here in Birmingham. It started in Tennessee. They moved here, and uh, they were the biggest competitor to J.P. Morgan's U.S. Steel. And, um, but it got into financial trouble in 1907, and the, long, the short story is that uh, uh, Theodore, President Theodore Roosevelt allowed for uh, J.P. Morgan and U.S. Steel to buy TCI. If TCI had died and collapsed, the whole city probably would have collapsed too. But uh, in that action saved the city. Uh, it, it encouraged more investment to happen because of that action. But one thing it did significantly was take the largest employer, the largest economic driver in the city, and all of a sudden it was owned by somebody somewhere else. And that has been a story of Birmingham from that moment forward. It really changed that upstart attitude to where now the major industrial interests really weren't here. They were somewhere else. Some people refer to that as you know, we became a colony of Pittsburgh that day, you know, and, and we sort of did. Uh, it, in a way, it saved us. It brought more stability, but the cost was we didn't really define our economic future anymore to the degree that we had before. The second thing I wanted to mention, this is um, picture represents in 1908, a year after that purchase, there was a miner strike. Uh, and what was interesting about this strike uh, of miners is that it really crossed the racial divide. It was black and white miners working together uh, to try to get better conditions for themselves. Uh, and uh, it was um, uh, something that, you know, of course, challenged the industrial interests and leaders of the state. But the thing that really ultimately led to crushing of this particular miner strike was the fact that it was blacks and whites working together. Because that was when the governor was asked to, to, to put down the rebellion, put down the strike. Uh, what he did uh, was use that as a way to say that there is a public health crisis. I mean, we've got black people and white people living together in tent cities. It's a public health issue. And so they put it down and, uh, you know, and wiped out that, that strike. And, you know, everybody kind of went back to doing what they did. But it signified the way we as a city and the culture, and this is not unique to Birmingham. This is a southern state, a southern city, and, and the way things were going around this time, you know, Jim Crow laws all over the South were really starting to harden up, right? So, um, but it certainly said this is the way we're going to deal with issues, you know, going forward. But the third thing about this era is this building actually still stands in Woodlawn today. This was Woodlawn City Hall. You know, all of these company towns began to build their own little towns around it. Birmingham existed. And in 1900, we were the 14th largest city in the South. By uh, the end of this decade, we'd become the third largest city in the South. And one of the big secrets and reasons for that is that there were a lot of these little towns that all of a sudden got merged into the city of Birmingham. Inslee, Woodlawn, North Birmingham, Eastlake, Avondale, all these places we call neighborhoods today of the city were their own cities. And they all uh, got merged into, and by 1910 had become part of the large city of Birmingham. Of course, we know that's the last time something like that really happened. And it didn't come without some... Um, you know, challenge. Uh, in fact, in Inslee, there's this uh, picture of, a, of a, somebody erected a tombstone to the city of Inslee, you know, that died, you know, because not everybody loved that. And I think a lot of people learned, you know, we got to kind of protect our interests a little bit. So what do we learn from this upstart era about our, our city's culture? 
I would say, first of all, outside forces with significant economic control is one of the things that has defined the sort of culture of the city going forward. Uh, also, dependence on one economic driver. We were an iron and steel city, right? Uh, we were an industrial city. And as we uh, had all our eggs in one basket, that's going to come back to haunt us. But it also is um, one of those things that uh, when you know you've got that kind of thing going, there's always sort of an underlying fear. Uh, and I think a, a fear and distrust sort of um, uh, began to settle in. Uh, but also um, the setting of stage for separateness. Uh, and then finally, you know, for all of our um, uh, great wealth that was created here, largely this city was a working class city. I mean, that's who we have been throughout the history of the city. People came here to work and do hard labor, and that is reflective in, in that. So in the next era I'm going to go through quickly is the maturing era, and this goes through 1910 to 1945. This is when the city starts to grow up. You know, we were kind of a wild west town up to this point. You know, it was a boom town, and this is when the city that we kind of know today starts to really take form. Buildings like the buildings on the heaviest corner on earth, the Alabama Theater, the Pazitz Building, all those buildings that we kind of know kind of went up during this era. And uh, it's because the city was really beginning to take on more of a maturity. Uh, and uh, men like this, George Ward, who became a mayor, he was actually more, not an industrialist, but a more commerce interest, finance guy. He started what we would have known as Stern AG. You know, he was the founder, the, 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 the guy who started that. But he became a mayor, and he was very educated, world-traveled, and he wanted the city to, to clean up. And as, his, as he was a mayor, he began to do that and began to build the grand boulevards that we know uh, the park system uh, foundations of that were laid out, and he wanted to really make it a city beautiful. Um, but um, it was still a city that had a number of, of issues. For all the grand boulevards like Highland Avenue and uh, Red Mountain's houses beginning to be built, and the little idea of this place called Mountain Brook, you know, was sort of started in this era uh, by Jemison. Um, you had um, a lot of working class conditions like the ones that you see here. Um, and the people you see here, I've got a picture of Carrie Tuggle. Carrie Tuggle was uh, a woman who um, uh, started an orphanage for African-Americans, uh, boys, and, and a school, the Tuggle Institute, uh, to try to educate uh, African-Americans because they weren't getting an education, you know, from the white folks, right? So, um, uh, and she, but she got a lot of support from uh, many people in the, in the community. Uh, Louis Pizitz famously uh, helped her build a, a, a um, finance building the school uh, that she had. Um, and then there's Brother Brian, who uh, was a Presbyterian pastor who uh, was famous for his compassion. And uh, he, you know, was always walking around the city trying to help people and serve people. And today we still revere Brother Brian for his compassion. But he was also one of those early white ministers that said, you know, we've got an underlying problem here with the way we treat different people. Uh, you know, people are treated in different, different ways with different opportunities. And he was one to sort of talk about that a little bit. Um, and But you know, it wasn't just you know, sort of social justice. Uh, this man, uh, Mr. Egan, started what we now call a SIPCO, American Cast Iron Pipe Company, and that was a, a company that um, uh, he was very inspired by the social gospel. He was a very religious man, and he built a company that was going to be very compassionate to his employees. And even today, it is a it is an employee-owned uh, business, and so it is. Um, he did from a business perspective a lot. Uh, and, I, and I think the thing that we see here is that uh, compassion as a city began to happen uh, not because of government or, you know, because of the systems, but really because people got inspired to do things. And I think that's still very true 
of our city today. I mean, think about the, the power and, and influence of our United Way, which is not un, I mean, it's way beyond what other cities. Uh, the way we kind of get together outside of more government or formal systems to do things to serve is still, I think, true of our city. But um, we were a city within a city. You know, uh, we definitely, as a culture, created. We had sort of white culture, and then we had a, a black city. We had an African American community that because they couldn't, you know, do the things you know, or interact with uh, whites the way, uh, you know, and, and get the kinds of service from businesses and the, the whites could get, they created their own. A.G. Gaston became the first black millionaire in the city because he, you know, um, started as a miner serving sandwiches and selling sandwiches to his fellow black miners, and then he started uh, an insurance, and then he started uh, uh uh, banking and he started all the things that basically African Americans couldn't get from the white folks. He started doing and he made an empire uh, out of that. Fess Whitley, you know, culturally, musically, he trained a lot of musicians uh, in this early form of music, jazz, that uh, was uh, sent a lot of uh, African Americans out from here to fill up the big bands that became, you know, the music of the of the day during the early part of 20th century, um, and so. They, you know, the, the culture, when we talk about, you know, there was a very, 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 uh, it, its own culture very much exists in the African-American, uh, you know, world, not only then, but today. You know, a lot of the institutions are very important and very different that we often don't think about. Uh, this map is a map of the city, and you really can't make this out, I know, and I'm sorry, but really what this shows you is how intentional we were about trying to identify our separateness. So, at this point, this is probably the 19, late 20s, uh, you know, the green part here, this is Red Mountain, this is considered best, then you got kind of still desirable um, areas like Island Park and all, and then you got a huge swath of definitely declining, East Lake, Woodlawn, Inslee, um, you know, and then hazardous, but then here's one, Negro concentrations, I mean, they called it out, I mean, the, the zoning and the, the systems of the city were very much about how do we sort of separate and keep these you know, areas sort of in line. And um, it's the kind of thing that the Supreme Court would eventually have to strike down because a lot of cities were using kind of racial zoning. But it's also about investment. If this is the kind of thing that people are using to define how they're going to invest their capital, invest their business, and they see an area on the map that everybody thinks, oh, this is declining, you know, you begin to see how investment moves out of areas. And um, it's definitely defined us. But that moves us into the last big chunk of time, and um, uh, that gets us, um, again, just to wrap up, maturing, you know, private compassion, a sort of a hardening and perfecting of our separateness, uh, but we learn hard lessons, of course, uh, because, oh, I totally skipped over the Great Depression, I, my apologies. Um, you know, we were the hardest hit city. Uh, in 1934, President Roosevelt said, Birmingham's the hardest hit city in the country. We were a city, because we were dependent on that one industry, when all of the demand dried up for our product, uh, we were in trouble. Many thousands of people lost jobs, and then people were moving from uh, the, the rural areas who were getting thrown off their farms and coming to try to find jobs here, and it was just a mess. And there was a tremendous amount of uh, uh, health problems, and so we figured out really starkly during the Great Depression um, you know, what that looked like when you really only had one thing to go on. So that led to... Um, some change. Now, this is a picture of the old terminal station, which was torn down in 1969. That used to be our train station, if you don't know that. Um, it's a real tragedy that it no longer exists, but it was, um, what I like about this picture is, by not, you can tell it's probably the 1950s. By the time you get here, um, 
the, the train station, which at its peak, served 70 passenger trains a day. Over 70 trains a day came through here, bringing people in and out of here. Uh, by the time it shut down, it was less than seven trains a day that were bringing people. Look at all the cars. It's like the cars are choking the building, right? You know, and that's kind of what happened. Uh, after World War II, uh, people, mass automobile ownership were allowing people to drive, um, and other uh, government policies were allowing the growth of the suburbs. And um, so we had that happen here. Uh, places like Eastwood Mall opened uh, in 1960, which was the first uh, enclosed air-conditioned mall. All of a sudden, all that shopping you have, used to have to do downtown around the heat and the mud and the smoke in the air, you could do it inside the nice air-conditioned building, you know. So um, that was happening here. The suburbs were growing, and today, of course, we are a, 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 a county that has 36 different municipal governments in it. Um, all in just one county. That doesn't even count when you add up all the metro populations. But um, as opposed to going the direction we went in 1910, we went a different direction, uh, where we wanted, to, we felt the need to sort of, I think, control our own little kingdoms, and we ended up with um, 36 different municipal governments. But again, economically, we figured out we needed some change, and UAB came along and, and started uh, now as the largest employer. Um, and we could talk all day about UAB, but just I, uh, you know just make the point that we began to diversify a little bit as uh, iron and steel declined, but ultimately we had to deal with the biggest issue that hang, hung around our necks, and that was our intense um, segregation and uh, what that meant. And, you know, Birmingham was a city where Fred Shuttlesworth there invited Martin Luther King uh, to come here because he just knew Birmingham would be the kind of city where he'd get a big confrontation, and we gave it to him. Uh, you know, it, he, he came here, and, and, and our culture resisted change. You know, uh, we, we weren't very into doing something different. And uh, because of that, um, Birmingham became internationally known as one of the major battlegrounds for the civil rights movement, uh, leading to the famous pictures of dogs and hoses being turned on kids. And, of course, the three little girls getting bombed in their church at 16th Street Baptist Church, which you know highlighted how insidious this whole uh, bit of separation was. And it was. It, w it was cultural, it was economic, it was everything used to kind of keep that going. But um, uh, our city, you know, became very intensely rocked by this. And I, um, it, it led to a form of government change in the city of Birmingham, which um, these were, this was the old commission, several of the three commissioners, which then resulted in a change to a council form of government. Um, and a series of mayors after that that weren't quite so hardened in a segregationist stance, but certainly conservative. But by the time you got uh, past Siebel's, uh, past uh, Boutwell, Siebel's, and Van um, in the late 70s, after, uh, the population of our city, which had peaked at 340,000 in the city uh, in 1960, was uh, seeing a massive amount of white flight. Of course, today we're at 212,000 people in the city of Birmingham. Uh, and uh, an incident uh, of police brutality led to the election of the first African-American mayor uh, and the rise of black political power in the city, uh, which uh, for the next uh, 20 years, from 1979 to 1999, Richard uh, you know, controlled the city government, uh, and he did a lot of things to sort of modernize planning. He, he, he needs, you know, you know, there were a lot of things that he did that sort of laid the groundwork for what is still relatively um, healthy inner city compared to a lot of cities around the country that were going through tough times, you know, Cleveland and other cities like that that ended up with 
African-American mayors because of white flight. And they, you know, Detroit, you know, they're a lot worse off than our city is. And a lot of that is because of the, the, the fundamental things that Richard Arrington did to kind of keep it strong. But it was definitely a time, and I, I was a kid kind of growing up in this, this time. Uh, I remember how the animosity of the largely white suburbs against the city embodied in this man. You know, it was pretty intense. Um, uh, over time, the business community began to sort of develop a detente with, with Richard Arrington and sort of had a way of working with him. But overall, he was sort of seen as the embodiment of everything people didn't like about this rise in black political power. Uh, so we get to the end of Richard Arrington's time, and ironically, in 1999, that's the same year that the Vulcan statue had so deteriorated that it had to be taken off of its pedestal, uh, which to me is highly symbolic. You know, this was sort of the, he, Vulcan, who represented the, the industrial might of the city of Birmingham, had fallen apart and had to be taken down, sort of symbolizing the end, I think, of what Birmingham had been. Same year Richard Arrington stepped down. So sometimes history gives us these juicy little ironies uh, of things which help us symbolize things. But so we get to today. What is going on uh, in, in our city today? I think, I feel like we get, got to the new millennium and Birmingham didn't really know who it was. You know, what is Birmingham? We used to know we were, an iron, we were a place where people made iron and steel for a living. But what is Birmingham? We've got a lot more uh, of a diversified economy, but um, we still were sort of uncertain with that. Um, and, but I think there are a couple of things now that are going on that are helping to fuel some change. And I think there is an attitude shift, particularly among a younger generation of people that are beginning to see that, you know, yes, we're a city that was, we've, we've been a hardworking city. Uh, we've sort of been rocked by you know, a lot of public embarrassments and things that we haven't done well that has sort of clouded our reputation. But I think people are starting to want to pull beyond that. And uh, you're beginning to see with things like Railroad Park and the Barons moving back downtown and a lot of the entrepreneurial spirit in the city, a sort of a new era of people saying, you know, we don't just need to go somewhere else to enjoy our city. We can enjoy our city being here. We don't have to go to the beach or go to New Orleans or somewhere else to to play we can play here we can enjoy our city we can stay here and um, uh, and it is a city that today is attracting a lot of young people uh, we are one of the top sort of millennial attracting cities in the country right now um, the, the challenge is how do they stay here and that the, the, the stats actually show that the Millennials when they come here um, stay three to five years but the opportunities to remain are not as present for them which means that they have to go somewhere else where the opportunities are. And so I think that's one of the big challenges that we have as a community culturally. There were two, um, I know I'm running out of time, but there were two other little things I wanted to show just because we are, as a church, obviously a, um, uh, a church and Christians that worship in one of the you know, original churches of the city, right? Uh, we're downtown. And so what does this mean in our particular neighborhood? A couple things, you know, that I think are interesting that people may not know. This is where the policy wonky side of me comes out, so I apologize. But, um, you know, the Hoover, Birmingham Hoover MSA, if we say there are 630,000 jobs, 71% of all those jobs are in Jefferson County. 52% of those are in the city of Birmingham, and 51% of those are in the urban core of the city, which says that there still is a high concentration of employment in the center of the region which is different from a lot of places. If you were to put this up against a lot of other cities, this is not the case. We still have retained a lot of our employment and economic drivers in the heart of the region, which um, I think is something that is good for us ultimately. And the last thing I'm going to show, uh, when I say urban core, what do I mean? 
Um, I mean, uh, I'm defining it this way. In that study that I was pulling from, defined it this way. If this is the downtown and the advent's right here, you got south side UAB, but it also takes in the sort of neighborhoods of the south side, uh, Lakeview, Avondale, Wiggly and then, and then uh, what's that? How big the Wiggly make it on there? It's very important. It's a landmark. <laughs> Believe me. When I lived in Highland Park, I was there every day. Um, so um, uh, this urban core, what's interesting statistically, what's going on with this urban core, um, if you see this column is the stats from this urban core, um, 33,000 residents, uh, a little bit of growth, but more growth expected, whereas the rest of the city is still kind of continuing to see some decline. But look how young it is, 21.3% compared to 15% of the city as a whole and 13% of the U.S. College graduates, 42% uh, versus 24% for the city as a whole and 300%. And then the income. So we've got this urban core, which is really our neighborhood physically as a church. You know, this is where we are. Where if we're thinking about ministry opportunity, about attracting people or talking to people about the gospel, you know, you got to think about these kinds of things, uh, and among others. But I'm going to conclude here. I, I could keep talking, but I want to conclude by saying a couple things. Um, you know, we talked about the question of uh, what do we do with the culture that we have, and I think I've uh, I have uh, sort of put out my opinion being that uh, we're a city that has. Um, uh, had sort of working class roots. Uh, we figured out very early on how to be fearful of each other and how to sort of fragment. We've sort of perfected fragmentation as a city, as a community. Uh, and uh, I think questions for us as uh, civic leaders, as Christians, as a church, how do we overcome fear? How do we overcome distrust? How do we go to those uh, places that aren't the places we normally are, are in and be able to uh, to interact with folks and see see them for who they are and where they are and what they need, and um, ultimately um, uh, spread the gospel uh, in in our community in a way that it helps to heal and reconcile. So um, I'm going to pause and stop there and leave those questions. As we said, those questions are not questions that I'm going to answer for us. I think it's as a church it's something that we are talking about and want to continue to talk about, but. I'm happy to have any of a few minutes of anyone uh, dialoguing on anything they saw, uh, anything that they affirm, anything that they say you left this out, uh, whatever. That's fine. I've got thick skin, but I hope this is helpful in thinking about us as a as a church body and as Christians in our particular city. Because sometimes we don't see things uh, across uh, the community because we're in it every day, you know. So, any thoughts, comments, questions? Yes, ma'am. Are you taping this? It's taping. I hope. Okay, good. I sort of been moving away from it. I hope that it's, it's all on there. Yes. Troy. As you look at this, um, what's going on in the city? What are the models that are that are that you see are, from a Christian standpoint, what are the models or, or uh, who's stepping in and making an impact? If we think about how we might engage the city. Um, where do you see folks making an impact? Well, you know, I think folks make an impact a variety of ways. First of all, there are some of the avenues, like I mentioned before, like United Way and others, which are really focusing on resource development to be able to put into social needs in the community. And, and those are strong institutions that we have. Those are strong ways. And uh, But I also see, um, religiously, 
um, a lot of churches beginning to try to figure out how to cooperate. You know, how how can you know maybe some of the white suburban churches with black urban churches begin to sort of work together more on things, not to come in and say, hey, we you know we we have something you don't have, but more of a how do we begin to overcome um, you know traditional walls that exist, um, which I think that's a lot of it. I, you know, as I interact around the city and you know there's a lot of just um, you know, inherent distrust. Even if people are going to stand and be nice to each other, there's still a little bit of a standoffishness. And I think that sometimes that's only healed by just doing things together and getting to know each other better um, and listening to each other. So I do th- see some of that happening more in, in churches uh, in the community. Um, but I do think that the younger generation, if we can keep, keep people here, there's a lot more engagement of this uh, younger group of people um, I used to think I was young, but I'm not anymore. I think I've gotten to 45, so I'm, I don't know what I am. Uh, but I, I think that uh, the folks that are younger than me are fired up about Birmingham. They really are. Uh, and they want to stay here, and they want to contribute to it being a better place. So I have a lot of hope in that group. <laughs> Speaking of the young people. Uh, we had one more question, I think. Oh, yes. Yes. So, uh, again, that could be a whole other hour's worth of talk. But education is obviously one of the things that really, um, it, it's, it's one of the issues that create a lot of separation. Uh, but it's also um, uh, an issue that continues to be, you know, a major one. You know, I, my family, we live in the, in the city. Uh, we send our son here to the Advent School. Um, and um, I know a lot of uh, folks that want to stay in the city in certain neighborhoods, but you know it, it becomes an economic issue, cost issue, or what do you do with it, or or even how do you um, have people from very different cultures coming together in the same school? Um, so I don't know what the answer is for that, but there's some smart people working on it. Thankfully, uh, it's not going to happen uh, overnight. But what I always say from a economic development standpoint and a revitalization standpoint is, you know, over 70% of the households in this country don't have children in them. So um, there's a lot of opportunity for repopulating a city and revitalizing a city and having people come and do things in the city. You know, where if they're not, they don't have to worry about how am I going to educate my children. And so um, people always think that's the key thing, and it is very critically important because it's all workforce development is one of our major challenges. Uh, a lot of uh, economic development prospects sort of write us off when they sort of see do they have the workforce that we can actually bring. To our to our jobs that we're going to bring, so that's a huge issue for us from an economic development standpoint. Well, just a reminder that um, Rebecca Graber is the one who has all the answers on this. But if we are actually going, we're having lunch at 12:15 in the refectory. If you've not signed up yet, um, we'll have just kind of a discussion group. Uh, that's the format, and then we're going to walk over uh, about one or 1:30 to the Civil Rights Institute and kind of flesh this out, discuss it, think together. So um, see her if you want to sign up for that if you haven't already. The last thing I'd like to do as we leave is a prayer from our Book of Common Prayer. There is a prayer for cities in our Book of Common Prayer if you haven't ever seen it or read it or used it. I know our 5 o'clock community uses it um, in um, their worship, but let's pray together and I'm going to speak this prayer. Heavenly Father, in your word, you have given us a vision of that holy city to which the nations of the world bring their glory. Behold and visit, we pray, the cities of the earth, especially the city of Birmingham. Renew the ties of mutual regard which form our civic life. Send us honest and able leaders, 
Enable us to eliminate poverty, prejudice, and oppression, that peace may prevail with righteousness and justice with order, and that men and women from different cultures and with differing talents may find with one another the fulfillment of their humanity. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.